Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmer's Day, October 12th, 2020. Happy Thanksgiving, Canada. On the show today, listener questions and surveys. And in our main segment, Jim finishes up the history of Disney princesses in the parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose mail-in voting ballot was addressed to Chinandler Bong. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I've received less badly addressed mail. Over my lifetime, I have received mail for James Hall, James Hell, James Hale. <laughs> I'm always impressed by the U.S. postal system. It's like, fat man who lives in the woods. I know who to give this to. <laughs> it's, it's either Santa or Jim Hill. Let's see. There we go. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I want a horsey. Okay, wrong address. <laughs> wrong, address wrong address. Wrong right. address. There's the smell of cookies. Right. <laughs> there we go. By the way, as soon as I said Chin and Lord Bong, I know you listeners out there said Mrs. Chin and Lord Bong. <laughs> Very of good course. to all of you. Very good to of all course. Of, you. of course. And speaking of that, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, S. Banders, P. Coleman, and Kelly W., and longtime subscribers, Janet P., D.H., and Douglas I. Jim, these folks are the mechanics employed in Hondo's shop that you walk through on your way to board the Millennium Falcon in the Smuggler's Run attraction. You might wonder how people from Earth learned to work on the Falcon's light-speed-capable hyperdrive engine, but Kelly says most of it's from a 65 Pontiac Catalina, which everyone knows how to fix. True story. That would explain the glove compartment in the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> I opened it. There were mostly eight tracks. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long way towards explaining a lot of things. That's what I'm saying. There we go. All right. Let's do the uh, the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, let's jump straight to the listener emails. We got one from Jason. Uh, who, uh, when we were talking last week about a lack of female leads in Disney rides, Jason wrote in to say that there's a number of rides that focus on female characters. And he mentioned the Little Mermaid rides, uh, Snow White, and Alice in Wonderland over in Disneyland. Uh, it's true. All right, Jim, have we, did we miss any others in there? No, that's pretty comprehensive. All right, so the thing that I'd, I'd point out there is that in many of those rides, they're not the narrator in the way that, like, the ghost host is at the Haunted Mansion. So they're not the lead character in their own stories. And we need a ride that's hosted by a woman who tells her own story. So, yeah, Jason, thanks for uh, for pointing that out. Nicholas adds this, and Jim, this is a question for you. After Disney acquired Fox, there was no small amount of discussion online about Anya from Anastasia being added to the princess family. She checks all the boxes, and the animation of the original film was very much in the Disney style, even if the music was not. Then again, the movie wasn't a big moneymaker for anyone, even if it did spawn a very nice Broadway show 20 years later. So Jim, you wrote back a really nice response on this. Anastasia was made for Fox Animation, uh, released to theaters back in 97. It was directed by Don Bluth, who had once been envisioned as the future of Disney animation in the mid-1970s, but then to Ron Miller's eternal bane, that, that Bluth took a third of the animation staff out the door with him in September of 79 to launch his own uh, company, uh, Aurora Animation, which first made Secret Nim and then went on to work with Steven Spielberg on, on films like American Tale and Land Before Time. Not making any friends in Burbank is what you're saying? Pretty much so. I heard a fascinating story where Don had actually been cited 
on the Disney lot. And this is the equivalent of Osama bin Laden getting a visitor's pass to go visit the Obama White House. You know, just sort of like, <laughs> oh, what is he doing there? Yeah. Disney is melding its company with 20th Century Fox. And the feeling was it would be a very nice gesture because, face it, Don had started working at Disney in the 50s. It actually worked on Sleeping Beauty and had had a key role on virtually everything Disney released right up until uh, Pete's Dragon. It's a small one. So the notion is, you know, every two years at the D23 Expo, mm -hmm. they do the Disney Legends ceremony. And wouldn't it be a nice gesture to show how the two companies were coming together if Don, in recognition of all the work that he'd done previously for Disney and all the great work he'd done over at Fox if he were made a Disney legend. But then Don, just this past summer, announced that he was launching Don Bluth Studios, which is going to... <laughs> revive hand-drawn animation and it's going to create this series of bluth fables that could be perceived as direct competition for disney so if you go to disney plus you can get to anastasia i actually like the score for anastasia quite a bit so i mean they're not going to actively promote somebody who's competing with them it's just not going to happen yeah but the disney company also has a habit of awarding posthumous Disney legends. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. they may not be in a rush here, Len, I guess is the polite way of saying it. So Right. Yeah, eloquent. Speaking of the Haunted Mansion, uh, there's a new book out called Boundless Realms by our friend Fox Nolte. Jim, have you seen this? I have not. Fox uh, writes over at passporttodreams.blogspot.com. I'm about halfway through it, and it's fabulous. So Fox used to work at the Magic Kingdom's Haunted Mansion and provides an amazing amount of detail on the design and inner workings of the ride. One of the great things about the book is that it starts off by saying it's not going to cover the history of the ride and that we all know it, uh, which is kind of uh, interesting for, a, for yeah. a Disney book, right? So things like, you know, the fact that Walt wanted a haunted house or how the Imagineers say mm -hmm. they approached it and so on, all that stuff's already covered in other books. Mm -hmm. And Disney's pretty much effectively woven that into the canon that we we all know. So, mm -hmm. uh, so the book actually starts off... Um, by one of the early chapters by trying to identify this specific architecture style for the Haunted Mansion mm -hmm. as well as where it would live in the United States. So, for example, I always thought it was neo-Gothic and somewhere in the Hudson River Valley because that mm -hmm. ties into sort of colonial America and the Ichabod Crane cartoon, right? Yep, yep. So if, uh, but Fox argues that if you look at the surrounding context of Liberty Square, specifically things like Columbia Harbor House mm -hmm. or the fact that the wall that runs along the uh, front of the Haunted Mansion, the borders, rivers of America, it's actually called the seawall, that the Haunted Mansion has to live by the sea. So I won't spoil the details. Uh, you guys should buy the book and read it, but it's enough to convince me that, uh, that Fox is right on this particular thing. The other thing that I like about the book is that it, it explains how the moving candlelight effect works in the Haunted Mansion. Have you seen this, Jim? I was lucky enough to be able to interview Donny Osmond a couple of years back. Of it. I brought up the Disneyland Showtime episode, the TV special, The Wonderful Lord of Disney, where it's it's the Osmonds plus E.J. Peeker plus Kurt Russell who were right. wandering around the park and like the last 15, 20 minutes of it are sort of celebrating the mansion. And Donny talked about how they took them upstairs into the room where they did the candle effect. And he says, I can't tell you what you, that they did, but he said, it blew my 16-year-old mind. It's so simple, but so yeah. clever. So so Fox explains exactly what it is. And again, I, you guys got to read the book to, uh, okay. Uh, okay. to find it. Yeah, really, really mm -hmm. good. The, yeah, the other thing I like about the book is that Fox goes through um, archival footage of Disney Imagineers talking about how they designed the mansion. And Fox identifies 
the specific books that Disney used as design inspiration. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, you know really really important because a Disney doesn't do that sort of thing, right? They don't typically reveal sources, but two, it helps us better establish the context of the ride's design and show, and shows that the Imagineers are really really serious about placemaking. So that is that kind of like grounding, I think, that's really important. Anyway, book is fabulous. It's called Boundless Realms. It's by Fox Nolte. You can pick it up on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle. Wow, sounds great. All right, Jim, on to surveys. Uh, Devin sent in a Universal survey that asks about how Universal's recent discounted ticket offer affected the timing and length of his stay. So the question on this survey was, how important was this savings slash offer in your decision to visit Universal Orlando Resort specifically? It was the main reason for my visit. It was equally important as other reasons. Other reasons were more important or the offer was an extra benefit and it didn't really impact my decision to visit Universal Orlando Resort. And then, then there's a following question on that that asked why Devin was planning to go to Walt Disney World. And again, this is Universal asking people mm. why they were planning to go to Walt Disney World. So the uh, answers are, we're hoping for good weather, which I'm not even, I, 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 don't, I don't know. How, it, it's got to be like one of those trick answers that people are like, you put it in there to see if people are clicking things randomly. Okay. We were waiting for a new ride or attraction to open. We were hoping it would be less crowded. We had a good deal on tickets. It was the best fit for our schedule. There was a special event we wanted to attend or none of these reasons apply. Like, again, I think we're hoping for good weather was the sort of thing you put in there. Conversely, we were hoping not to get hammered by a hurricane. You know, it's just, it's Florida. You know, that's far more likely. Yeah, so the um, the thing I, I think they're trying to figure out there is how much more goosing of ticket prices they have to do to get more people in. Because remember, we're uh, we're about halfway through that special $165 ticket offer that's good through the end of the year, right? I think they just extended it by a week, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, okay. But still, I mean, January is looming, right? Yeah, no, no, it is. It is. We got another survey sent in by our friend Shannon, who saw this DVC survey uh, that Disney had sent out to people who bought points at Saratoga Springs. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about this survey, and it contains all the you know the usual questions about Saratoga, but it asks why you didn't want to buy at the Riviera. So the first question uh, that's relevant here is, prior to purchasing vacation points at Saratoga Springs, were you familiar with Disney's Riviera Resorts resale policy? So the resale policy uh, says there that you, you're reselling the, you're buying a resale uh, sold contract. You don't get the same benefits as somebody who buys points directly mm-hmm. from Disney, right? The next question was, you mentioned that you knew you could purchase vacation points at Disney's Riviera Resort. Why didn't you? want to purchase or out on vacation points at this property. And the options were location, transportation options, the number of restaurants and dining options, the number of years with the contract, the cost of vacation points was more expensive, Disney's Riviera Resort resale policy, or amenities such as pools, recreational activities, and so on offered at the resort. And Shannon also said, what I noticed is they don't ask about the high points chart Mm-hmm. for the Riviera, which is a great point, right? They talk about the cost of the vacation points, but mm-hmm. not about the cost of staying there. So mm-hmm. Shannon says, many like me thinks that it's just as much a factor as the resale restrictions. It's expensive points-wise to stay there. We lived our stay, but we splurged for two nights and we were in a standard uh, studio. Anything more than that is just too many points. When they built this resort, we don't have to worry about this one because the 50th anniversary celebration is literally right next door. And once that kicks on, this is obviously the place you want to be. In this resort, you can go upstairs and watch Harmonious play out. There was this whole notion that if, if everything had gone according to plan, 
that show would be open now. Disney would have announced all of the features for the 50th anniversary. Epcot was the dead, the white hot center of the 50th anniversary celebration. Right, all the construction projects would be done. Yeah, so this yeah. was the resort. If you were coming into the DVC thing, it's like, well, you know, our 50th is right there. It's like, oh, of course we're going to sell this. And to have this disruption of what the plan was has obviously, you know, there's been a flow downhill and it just sort yeah. of sales are much slower than expected on Riviera. And it's like, okay. How do we recover from this? It's true. I mean, I've I've stayed there. I like the mm-hmm. Riviera. I think the rooms are fantastic. They're um, they're well designed. They're comfortable. They're well lit. It is really really expensive mm-hmm. from a points perspective. And the fact is, you know, I know it's convenient to Epcot because mm-hmm. of the Skyliner, but yep. you know, so is Beach Club. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper. You know, that's what it comes down to. There, like, is it is the incremental cost of the Riviera mm-hmm. worth the better furnishings and decor mm. for a lot of people it's not and i i say all the time right you know mm. a, a hotel is not a place just to sleep right it's not right all mm-hmm. of our survey data says that people who say that going into a trip don't say it after the trip and i believe mm. it right i believe it i believe yeah, it's not yeah, true yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but still at some point you've got to look at that and say the incremental cost difference between staying at you know beach clever boardwalk villas versus riviera is some really nice dinners somewhere else and I'll, I'll take the food. Okay. You are right about when you're planning the trip and if you're trying to get down there for a certain price point, you go, all right, we'll stay there. But when you're staying at some place like the All-Stars, it's a different vacation experience than, than say, if you're at the equivalent of, of Riverside or the like. Yeah. Especially since none of those resorts you just mentioned are open. But yeah, I know what you're saying. There we go. There we <laughs> I know, go. I know it's very lonely. Them. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for weeks now for first towels. What's when going this, on? When is this next bus coming? It's never coming. <laughs> My God. God. So, okay. uh, so Susan also sent in a, a multi-part survey that had some, uh, some really interesting questions. One of them, and I haven't seen this before. And I want to get your take on this, Jim. One of the questions on its own screen is, are you a grandparent? As somebody who's 61, I now fall solidly in this this demographic group. AARP has had a price on my head for years now. and <laughs> But you're the one, in theory, who has the income. That's exactly what I was thinking. It's like yeah. The, the boomers are the only ones with, with monies. We might as well market to them. There you go. That's so. exactly what I thought of that. All right. It's nice mm. to hear confirmation. Mm. Um, Susan also got a survey question that asked whether recent changes to park operations affected her trip. And so the questions go like this. Extra magic hours allowing Walt Disney World Resort Hotel guests early access mm-hmm. to the theme parks temporarily suspended. And did this positively impact my, my intent to visit, have no impact on my intent to visit, or negatively impact my intent to visit? And there's another question around character meet and greets and dining experience being temporarily unavailable with the same three options. Positively impact my intent to visit, neg- uh, no impact, and then negatively. A similar question on nighttime spectaculars and around uh, parades being temporarily paused. And to Susan's credit, I actually wrote her a separate email on this. To Susan's credit, she indicated by her screenshot mm-hmm. that she said that all of these things uh, being temporarily suspended negatively impacted her intent to visit. So way to go, Susan. That's, uh, that's exactly how I would have answered this too. Except for the parades. <laughs> Except for the parades <laughs> where she said <laughs> not having parades positively impacted her trip i swear to god susan if i didn't already have a twin sister i would wow say we we, say we were related somehow okay psychic twins so uh so jim i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that i'm pretty sure disney knows 
mm-hmm. all of the responses they're going to get here, right? Mm-hmm. You think they're just looking at the magnitude of the responses, like how bad it is? It's one of these things where you, you need the official validation. There's a, a supposition that, okay, how bad is this going to be? And we're in the middle of October at this point. I think we talked about this previously, about the national television campaign that Disney has out right now that just hammers the holidays. Yeah. You want to be here and bring your mask, but we're still outside of what we realistically could consider the holiday season, especially with Disney deciding not to do Halloween this year. So I've heard that uh, Disneyland had started to put up very temporary or very limited Halloween decorations on the anticipation of California allowing them to open. And they took those down this week and have put up uh, Christmas decorations. Yeah. Even then, yeah. I got to say, I, I don't agree with Newsom here. I don't, I think Disney's shown that they can responsibly run, run a theme park. I, you know. You're right. You're absolutely right. But at the same time, one might argue that Newsom has been one of the most consistent guys when it comes to handling COVID-19. And, you know, has been a good, strong hand on the tiller of the state of California trying to battle this pandemic. And we're seeing an uptick. You know, in fact, what was it, just yesterday? They, they were talking about it's conceivable. We're going into 2021 that we're going to see 300 to 400,000 dead yeah, associated 400, with... 400,000 is, uh, is the new number now, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it's one of these situations where it's like, I get that you want to go there. I get that everybody at this point is exhausted with wearing a mask or social distancing or that sort of thing. The pandemic doesn't care. And particularly in, in this era now where... We still haven't got the contact tracing we really need. and Yeah, no vaccine, no contact tracing. Really nothing's changed from March other than we know to wear masks now. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. And then, yeah. and then when you look at these, what have become super spreaders events, it's like, I thought we had a handle on this stuff. And it's like, nope. No, I, I get it. It's just, it's, uh, I see both sides of it. I, no, I, no, no, I get it. I get it. And it, it, it breaks my heart for the cast members. It breaks my yeah. heart. For all of the folks, you know, who work at Imagineering, who now now have their lives and careers on hold, but pandemic doesn't care. And we we need to knock this thing down before we can get back to what we want to do. So uh, I've been talking to some folks about when a vaccine would be, you know, widely available because we're trying to figure out from a Mm -hmm. crowd perspective, you know, when. um, And and it's it's not just the vaccine being declared, you know, safe and effective, but it's Mm -hmm. when I say widely available, I mean, you can walk into a CVS and get a shot. Mm-hmm. Right. And so what I've heard is sort of like around April one Yeah, for yeah. that. So, I mean, it'll be approved. It'll go out to, you know, frontline healthcare workers and the most vulnerable sometime later this year. And then first quarter, it'll be ramping up production and distribution. That'll take, you know, 90 days or so. So hopefully by, uh, by April, which is, which is good. So if we can do that, we can accelerate that even a little bit and get, you know, spring that would break. Be great. That yeah. Would be that'd great. be really good. Awesome. We still have basically five more months of this. At the very least. In fact, I don't know if you saw earlier this week where Universal blinked and moved Jurassic World Dominion back. 20 to 2022? 2022. That's a real canary in the coal mine there, Len. The fact that here's this huge tent pole that, you know, so much of what Universal is doing, whether it's the Camp Cretaceous animated series or the Velocicoaster that's going to be opening an Islands of Adventure, they've got so much tied up in this IP. And the fact that they just moved the film that's supposed to help support this IP back right. a full two years or 18 months at this point. But So what, what they're saying, though, then, is that they don't expect the uh, in-person movie experience to bounce back in summer of 2021 or mm-hmm. that there's so much competition. Mm-hmm. 
that they want to see what 2022 is going to be like. I, I think it's probably a combination want, of both I, those I, things. I love your optimism. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm, I'm going to get on board with that. It's going to be so busy to the multiple, multiplex in 2021. This was the wise decision. Move it to a safer, less busy harbor as yeah, opposed I'm, to and nobody's yeah. going back to the movies. But Exactly. All right, cool. All right, folks, we're going to take a, uh, a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim finishes up the history of Disney princesses in the parks. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, when we last left off this discussion, we had focused on Disney announcing and then uh, redoing its original plans for new Fantasyland in the Magic Kingdom around 2009, 2010, 2011. Where do you want to pick up? Let's start in January 2012. I mean, they have begun site prep for new Fantasyland at this point. Tom Staggs has just come through the door as the new head of parks and resorts. And he's starting to express his concerns about how New Fantasyland has really too many interactive meet and greets and that they, they need something different. And the Imagineers are like, we have started work. Here are bulldozers on site. There isn't time right now to design something new. And so Stag's response is actually really clever. It's like, okay, well, show me something old. Show me something Disney Princess right. related that you guys have already designed but never built. That maybe if we do that, we can hit the ground running with the replacement for the Cinderella Sleeping Beauty thing. And to Stag's point of view, doing a the Enchanted uh, Tales with Belle and then the Cinderella meet and greet that is interactive and the Sleeping Beauty meet and greet, it's like opening an ice cream parlor and only serving vanilla. We need some different flavors here. We need to appeal to a broader audience as opposed to the little girl demographic that loves the Disney Princess IP. And as it turns out, they actually had pulled out of the files a Seven Dwarfs mine train attraction, which had been pitched as far back as Tokyo Disneyland in 1983. The Imagineers had originally wanted in that park the equivalent of the 20,000 Leagues ride at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, or for that matter, how Casey Jr. and the Storybook Canal boat rides intermingle at Disneyland. You know, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of kinetics that came off of having that sort of attraction in the middle of the land. And so they'd also hoped that they could convince the Oriental Land executives to to go with this attraction, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, because then that would then open up a space in the show complex around the castle so they could drop a new dark ride in. They had designed the uh, Pinocchio's Daring Journey ride for the Dumbo Circus Land attraction at Disneyland that had never been built. And they had poured a lot of money into this thing that didn't get built. So they wanted to get some sort of return on investment. So it's like, hey, we've already got this designed. But the Oriental Land executives are like, especially back in the 70s, they were cautious businessmen. So that's like, unless you could take them to the ride and put them on it, they didn't want to build it. In fact, the only way they eventually got it into Tokyo Disneyland is that as part of the Disneyland, New Fantasyland project, which was 82 to 84. They basically went to the Oriental Land executives and said, we are already building one of these for Disneyland in California. We could quite easily build a second one and you wouldn't have to pay the development costs. I mean, it's sort of the my pillow deal. <laughs> land, you know, the effect of, you know, you'll get a second pillow. You know, just have to pay an extra fee for mailing and, and you know, that, that sort of thing. So uh, shipping anyway, and handling. Yeah. shipping and handling. All right. So anyway. The other reason this particular plan had been pulled out of the draw is that, remember, Hong Kong Disneyland opens in September of 2005. 
And that was a park where they were, you know, they had to do attractions in three different languages, Mandarin, English, and I want to say Cantonese. Cantonese, right, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you had so many different people in the park who spoke different languages. And this really bit Disney in the butt when it came to things like Space Mountain, where the way Chinese families travel, when they do the park, they bring their one child, the parents, and then both sets of grandparents. Right. And they'd all queue up as a group to get on rides. And, and no one would read the signs. So they would get on rides like Space Mountain, which, remember, is an enclosed roller coaster. So there's nothing outside that says it's a roller coaster. Mm. And the train would pull into the station. And, you know, there they were several times they had... <laughs> Screaming grandparents. <laughs> screaming parents. You know, and so that's, if you jump ahead to when they started building the new, when they expanded that park, you got things like the Grizzly Mountain Runaway Mine Cars, where that roller coaster was staged in such a way that it ran through the park in the open. So it's like, you can everyone, see. Yeah, everyone yeah. knows what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, when it came to Shanghai, then in fact, they're working at Shanghai now. And, and you know, when, when Stax is, is coming in as the new chair of, of parks and resorts. And they're taking the lesson they learned in, in Hong Kong and applying that directly to Shanghai. So for example, they don't have a space mountain, but they do have the Tron light cycle, which again, you walk up and you see, okay, that's a roller coaster. Grandma, you're not getting on that. And the same thing with Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. The notion was, okay, we have our two coasters in the park that are out in the open. You can see what they are. And so they'd already pulled this plan out for the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, and Stag's like, that's it, let's do it, that's exactly what we need. Mm. The problem is that this project's underway, Lynn, so they don't even announce the changes. This plan is changed till January of 2012. And in the meantime, what they do while they're, they're now trying to figure out how do we drop Seven Dwarfs Mine Train on top of where the Sleeping Beauty and the Cinderella, uh, you know, meet and greet was going to be. So they just basically concentrate on the periphery, the Enchanted Tales with Bell Cottage and the Be Our Guest Restaurant and the Ariel's Journey, Voyage of the Little Mermaid, or Under the Sea, the Journey of the Little Mermaid. So they're working on all of that. Why Staggs is insisting on this change is remember that prior to becoming heads of the parks, he was the CFO. As the CFO of the Disney company, he had the luxury of peeking over the horizon. And Princess of the Frog had already opened at this point. It opened in November of 2009. But do you remember what they did in the parks when Princess and the Frog opened, the, the Tiana Showboat Jubilee? Did you right. ever see that? Yeah, on the uh, Liberty Bell Riverboat. Yeah, a spectacular mm -hmm. show. And it just started on the riverfront, transitioned to the boat. They took the boat out on the water. Uh, for like was 20 it, minutes. I mean, yeah. it ran for like, it ran for what, like eight weeks? It actually ran for six. It stopped five days after New Year's Day 2010 because it was, it wasn't paid for by the parkland. It was paid for by the studio. Right. It was only there to support the theatrical release. And the belief was that after January, you know, New Year's Day 2010, the kids go back to school and the market for tickets for a new Disney animated film goes straight through the floor. So it's like, no, nah, we're not going to support a show that, that runs much longer than New Year's Day. Yeah, our, our part of this is done. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, you've got Stags who's looking at Tiana's Showboat Jubilee actually gets higher marks than the Princess and the Frog movie. You know, just that he's looking at the guest surveys and he's looking at the surveys for the folks. Yeah. And he knows that people are going to be looking to meet with Tiana, you know, the Disney's first Afri African-American princess. And so he's going to need a home for her in the park. 
But at the same time, he knows that in November 2010, Tangled is coming out. Then in June of 2012, we've got Brave. And then looking ahead to 2013, Thanksgiving of that year, we have not one but two princesses coming with Frozen. So it's the notion of I've got all of these princesses headed into the park. That's actually pretty interesting for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, so he, he knew mm-hmm. he knew that those things were coming. But you know, going back to the the riverboat thing, mm-hmm. that's a case where you know Disney having these corporate silos, right? Yeah. Movies versus theme parks, right? Mm-hmm. Where you know the movies aren't going to spend any more of their budget to help the parks than they absolutely need to. But somebody needs to look at this and say what's best for the Disney company as a whole, and that's what Stags is doing here. Yeah, no, that's it exactly. And so he decides he needs a flex space, you know, in much the same way of Epcot has World Show Place. He needed a Disney princess flex space. To move princesses in and out, right, to rotate them, yeah. There we go. And so it's like, well, look, at you know, we're going to build the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. We don't need two attractions based on a movie that opened in 1937. Oh, the Snow White Scary Adventures, right? Yeah, yeah. And so the notion is, look, we get this prime piece of real estate right by the castle. Let's create a place that could serve all princesses. And so this is how we get Princess uh, Fairy Tale Hall. Now, we don't get, he doesn't reveal officially the plans for the new Fantasyland to, again, January 2011. Work never stops, Len. They just keep, you know, working around that giant chunk of real estate in the middle. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to ask because, you know, so much of what Jay Rizzullo did was based on the research that Andrew Mooney had done when he was launching the Disney Princess franchises. And so you have to ask, well, how did Mooney feel about this? And it's like, well, he didn't much care because he left Disney in 2011. He, he felt he'd, he'd done everything he could and he moved on. And in fact, 2015, he because he collects electric guitars, he got his dream job. He wound up as the CEO of, of Fender. Really? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, so you be- so you mentioned that that uh, Stags doesn't tell anybody mm-hmm. about the change. But I, I recall, and this must have been you telling me like a year in advance of what was going to happen, mm-hmm. uh, because I I seem to remember knowing before the announcement how the fairy tale hall thing was going to integrate. Because if I recall correctly, I was updating the touring plan software mm-hmm. way even before the. Uh, Snow White Scary Adventure closed. And that was like, so I must have been doing it like 2010, 2011. When did it close? The attraction itself finally closes on May 31st, 2012. In fact, because Staggs has made this huge course correction midway through the project, New Fantasyland now has to open in two phases. We get phase one with the, the stuff on the periphery I described previously in December of 2012. And then Fairytale Hall itself doesn't open till September of 2013. Um, a quick side note, though, because I know you were familiar with Ben. Oh, Ben, yeah, the kid that rode uh, a scary, uh, Snow White Scary Adventures like several thousand times. I actually rode with him. Did you really? I think we've, we've told this story on the show, haven't we? Yeah, we have. We have. I mean, but just yeah. that's a, the interesting thing. I just came across the fact that when they closed the attraction, you got to be the last ride. Well, not only did he get to be the last ride, but he and his family were so close to reaching 3,500 rides officially 
that Disney let them ride it like a couple of dozen more times just so they could actually get to that number. Oh, sure. And then uh, Snow White rode with Ben, I think, on the uh, on the very last ride. And then yeah. they, they posed for pictures afterwards. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think I've told the story on the show before, but I talked to his dad mm-hmm. one time about like, dude, how do you how do you ride this thing 3,500 times? Mm-hmm. And he said that they, uh, they like to reimagine how the ride might be <laughs> in you know, different ways as they go through it, which is like – Something that's okay. stuck with me forever. So I've talked to I talked to his dad, I guess, a few mm. years ago. I mean, yep. Ben's a teenager now. He's mm-hmm. probably older than that. But, you know, he was, he was doing all right. He was mm-hmm. doing good. All so, right. um, yeah, they check in from time to time, which is nice. I love the fact that even with this project moving forward the way it did, they, they went out of their way to do this nice thing yeah. with that family. And so. Disney did right. There. Yep. They, they understood the context of it all and, and did the right thing on behalf of the fans. So that was very nice of them. Okay, but as it turns out, man, I gotta have Tom Staggs buy my lottery tickets for me because it's like Fairy Tale Hall opens September 18, 2013, which is two months ahead of when the most popular princesses in the history of the Walt Disney Company, Anna and Elsa, arrive on the horizon. So the fact Do that you remember the wait times oh. of Princess Fairy. What? Five. So I was five hours. Like mm-hmm. five. Like we. It was the first time I ever saw Disney with an actual, real, mm-hmm. in the park wait time sign that said three hundred minutes. Like a physical. Somebody had to paint the the number three hundred on yeah. a sign. I was amazed. Uh, and I, I think I've told this story too. But I was in Disneyland that summer mm-hmm. with Hannah, and we waited five hours. Did you? To meet the – oh, my God. So the Princess Fairy Tale Hall was in sort of the middle of Fantasyland and the, the line stretched mm-hmm. out going towards Frontierland. So if you're mm-hmm. familiar with, with Disneyland and where sort of the, um, mm-hmm. the carousel is, it sort of goes back into the left and way in there. So and mm-hmm. parents were there with their kids and mm-hmm. we all knew like, okay, there's no way we're going to – we're all going to just stand here for five hours. So mm-hmm. people would save their – Ask, ask them, you know, the, the person behind them to save their spot in line so mm-hmm. they could go get lunch or whatever. And we did, right? We was mm-hmm. like, we all took turns like taking kids to bathrooms and getting snacks and and food and everything. And I, I like to joke that I've had relationships that haven't lasted as long as the amount of time that I spent in line there. But the uh, the absolutely marvelous thing about it was yep. we get to, to meet Anna and Elsa. And, mm-hmm. and again, there were literally two people. Yeah. Who were playing Anna and Elsa because they they hadn't hired enough people, and it was two of them for sixteen hours a day from from the time start, right? So, and they've been doing this for weeks, right? So, mm-hmm. imagine working every day for sixteen hours, meeting people one after the other. Like I, yeah. I don't know how you would. There weren't enough. There weren't enough uh, socially acceptable drugs in the world <laughs> for me to do this, right? But so we walk in, mm-hmm. and Anna is jumping around Hannah. Mm-hmm. Like hadn't been, been there for five hours and yep. jumping around here, like super excited to see her. Mm-hmm. They didn't rush us through. Mm-hmm. They talked, they did all kinds of poses. And I'm like, I, like, I think I said this in the review, like it, it felt like these characters were just as happy to see Hannah mm-hmm. as Hannah was to see them. And to be able to pull that off yeah. after, after all of those hours and yeah. endless, you know, endless greetings of like, it tells you that cast members who do that are, are special people, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I, yeah. I, I'm not built that way. I couldn't. I couldn't. No, no, no. Here's your hat. What's your hurry? Nice to see you. Get out. <laughs> like, this has just been great, but I'm really tired. Yeah. <laughs> like, I need to go take a nap. <laughs> and, they, and they did it. It was. Uh, and then we did the, the same thing later mm-hmm. on. I think, it was, I think Disney was still doing 24-hour events. Mm-hmm. And they ran the character. They ran the frozen character greeting. Mm-hmm. For 24 hours. So we got in line at like midnight oh. to do the same thing. And it ended up the same way. It was just 
they were super happy to be there at three o'clock in the morning. By you the know, way, meeting people or whatever. Okay. Like, Do you remember, particularly for the Disneyland one, you get up to the building, you're not inside yet, but they had an Olaf animatronic up on the roof that was talking to you. Yeah. The cool yeah. thing about what they did is at night, they actually, they had a night cycle for Olaf. And so literally the figure's eyes closed and he would gently snore and murmur in his sleep. <laughs> and so I meant to ask Josh about that. Well, so what was that like? What was the uh, recording what, what for is that? The, what's the stage direction that they're giving you for this? <laughs> snore. No, no, more sleepily. Like what? <laughs> If I, ever, if I ever meet Josh Gad, that's going to be the question I ask him. Like, there we go. The, there we go. What's the, what's the stage? Did, did he ask, like, okay, what's my motivation here? Am I having a restless night's sleep? Did I just take an ambient? What am I? That's why they don't let me in media events. This is it right here. By the way, I would be totally remiss if we get our phase two of Fantasyland at the, the Magic Kingdom opens just eight months after Royal Fairy Tale Hall does with right. Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. But I would be remiss, Len, if I did not mention the most interesting aspect of the new Fantasyland project that came before this, and that, of course, is the tangled toilets. The, the the bathrooms are interesting, but I know where you're going with this, and I think I think I think we both agree on it. Go ahead. Today, I came across the Turing Plan stories about this has opened, and it was fascinating to watch you guys try to figure out. How do we report on the most elaborately themed bathrooms in the history of the Disney theme parks? Because it was like nobody could quite figure out, this is it, really? This, these are bathrooms plus places where I can charge my phone with a, I guess, a photo op of, of Rapunzel's Tower in the background? You know, it's just sort of, it was interesting to watch folks try to figure out, what is this exactly? And, and to be honest, nobody figured out that the real get here wasn't necessarily the tangled themed bathrooms, but no, the fact it's the, it's, it's the stroller parking. <laughs> That's it exactly. <laughs> it's exactly what it is. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> they moved so theme park. If you remember from ten years ago, they moved the they sw- swapped the entrance of mm-hmm. it's a small world from mm-hmm. being over by Peter Pan. Yep. To being over by the bathrooms, and they could put the entrance there because the tangled bathrooms mm-hmm. allowed them to put stroller parking there. It was such a, a great bit of sleight of hand because everybody was like, ooh, Rapunzel's Tower did. Ooh, look, there's lanterns in the bathroom. And, and the ops people are like, oh, thank God we can get these thousands of strollers out of the street. And that's what it is. Because remember, that was a pinch point. The, uh, yeah, the entrance no, absolutely. From the, from the entrance of It's a Small World through the curve over towards Haunted Mansion yeah. got really, really crowded. And I remember, I mean, I've been there when mm-hmm. you're shoulder to shoulder with people mm-hmm. shuffling your feet. Mm-hmm. Trying to get through. And the reason for that is, you know, people put their strollers there and then cast members had to go grab them. And very busy times, people can deposit strollers mm-hmm. faster than Disney can move them because Disney's got to remember where they put them and so on. Yep. So, yep. Yep. yeah, that was a, it was one of those little tweaks where everybody got what, you know, everybody got something on it, right? So mm-hmm. the guests got, you know, decent bathrooms and, mm-hmm. and more walk space. Mm-hmm. You know, Disney got better park ops. Like it was just a win for everybody and it's bathrooms. Absolutely. And, and yeah. to this day, I keep waiting for the Flynn Rider and Rapunzel photo op because I've, I've been flat out told by the designer, if you look at where the Rapunzel tower has been placed and you look at the rock work. There's a spot for the, you can you walk into it, you can tell exactly where they're supposed to stand. Yeah. And you could, it, you could also see where the queue in theory for this yep. meet and greet yep. is supposed to be. And, and it never happened. And yeah. it never happened. I'm amazed too. Cause you look at it and you're like, it, 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 the first time you walk into the space, you're like, mm. okay, this is way more elaborate and larger than it needs to be 
Mm-hmm. This has to be a character greeting. Where would they put the characters? Yeah. 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 This is installment four of a series that I swore to Len <laughs> I would wrap up in two. And, and there is more story to tell. But for now, we'll just put a, a, a pin in the Disney princesses in the parks and leave it here. But I, I will say that, you know, remember, we've got Rhea and the last dragon coming, yet another Disney princess. So uh, this story continues very, very soon. All right. Jim, thanks for that. All right, folks. That's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. You'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including new in-park audio. Jimmy said we're uh, we're releasing Animal Kingdom? Uh, yep. Folks, if you're curious about George, you want to listen to this show. <laughs> and we've also got a special series coming up on the Disneyland Circus. Mm. On next week's regular show, we have an actual person who knows what they're talking about, Bethany Bemis a museum specialist in Washington, D.C., who's going to talk to us about Disney theme parks and the American narrative. And the week after that, I think we're doing Wonders of Life, Jim? We are. We are. Though I have to admit, I'm looking forward to this guest. I am super excited, too. All right. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Lynn, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's creating the holiday selfie backgrounds for this year's suburban indie home and outdoor living show, October 16th through the 18th at the Grand Parks Event Center in beautiful downtown Westfield, Indiana. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.